Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. It's Thursday morning, and it's time to study Parsha. This week, we begin a new Chumash, Parsha Tvorim. Chumash Tvorim, Chumash Tvorim, Parsha Tvorim. Chumash Tvorim is also referred to as Mishnah Torah, which means a repetition of the Torah. And on a simple level, the reason for that is because Chumash Tvorim uh, was given over by Moshe Rabbeinu to the Jewish people in the last 36 days of his life and is, as the name indicates, Mishnah Torah, primarily, essentially, um, a repetition of the Torah. Uh, Moshe spends three parshiyos uh, repeating the stories that took place with the Jewish people um, over, his, over his leadership, and then the rest of the Torah, Moshe spends repeating many of the mitzvahs uh, that, were, that the Jews already had been given. Referred to, again, as Mishnah Torah, a repetition of the Torah. Uh, but of course, nothing in Torah is ever that simple. While although it is supposed to be a repetition, once the repetition starts, all of a sudden, uh, new things are discovered that weren't stated the first time or that weren't known the first time. Um, and of course, these new, these new insights, uh, they challenge us to change our understanding of everything that was said until now, which of course shouldn't be surprising if there was no reason for it to be repeated, and then the Torah wouldn't repeat it. But nevertheless, the Torah wants it both ways. Chomish Tvorim is a Mishnah Torah, which means it's a repetition. And yet at the same time, as it gets repeated, uh, so many things, so many things change. I'm going to jump right in here. Um, the second, the first story that Moshe repeats is his own, he talks about his own inability to lead the Jews by himself, how he needed help. Sorry, Alofim, sorry, Meir, sorry, Hamishim, sorry, Asores, judges, a Sanhedrin who would help him, um, officers of thousands, officers of hundreds, officers of 50, of 10, etc. That's the first story Moshe repeats. Um, again, also, there are, we learn many things in Moshe's repetition that we didn't know the first time. But then the second thing that Moshe says, which I want to talk about today, Moshe goes straight into repeating the story of the spies. Um, in Perak Aleph Posuk Chavbez, chapter 1, verse 22, Moshe goes straight into it. But Moshe says, You approached me and you said that you wanted to send men to go and, and spy out the land. Okay. And Moshe tells the story. The spies went, they came back. The Jewish people did not want to go into Eretz Yisrael. Hashem decreed upon them that they would all die out in the desert. Um, and everybody, in fact, does die in the desert, except for Kolev and Yehoshua. They're the only ones who go into Eretz Yisrael. Um, everyone else does not. Moshe repeats how after the Jews are told that they're not going into Eretz Yisrael, after they were told that by the, at the sin of the spies that Hashem was unhappy with them, the Jews then did Teshuvah, or what they felt was Teshuvah, and decided to go into the land of Eretz Yisrael. Anyways, Hashem told them not to go. They went. They were attacked. Uh, they were defeated. Jews were killed. Rahman al Islam. The whole, the whole, the whole story uh, is repeated, and all of the disaster um, that ensued. Okay. I want to focus today on two parts that are two elements of the story that are repeated by Moshe that are not known until this point. There's many more, but I want to focus on two. Number one, Posuk Chav Gimel, Moshe says, Vayitav be'enai hadover. Moshe says, when you suggested, when you, the Jews, proposed that we send spies, I actually, Moshe says, I actually thought that was a good idea. I chose 12 men, one man per tribe. So Rashi hears this and Rashi jumps. Rashi says, whoa, Moshe Rabbeinu is honestly stating that he thought it was a good idea. Well, that's problematic. Why is it problematic? Why is it problematic to say that Moshe thought it was a good idea? You see, because one of the reasons, even on a simple level, why Moshe is even repeating this in the first place, why is he repeating it, right? I said before that as he repeats it, new things are discovered, fine. But, but, but what's the inherent reason why these stories are being repeated? The reason why he repeats them again, one of the reasons and, and on, on a pshat level 
is to rebuke the Jews. Right? Rashi explains that Moshe waited till right before he was about to die. This takes place a month and, and, and change before Moshe's passing. And he rebukes the Jews. Look what you guys did. You sent spies. Because of you sending spies, we ended up 40 years in the desert and that whole generation didn't go into Eretz Yisrael, etc., etc. So Rashi jumps here because he says, and I'll quote Rashi's words, Rashi says, if Moshe thought it was a good idea, then what's the rebuke? It's like he's wagging his finger at them and going, oh, you terrible Jews. You proposed that we send spies. And then he says, to tell you the truth, I actually thought it was a good idea. So Rashi goes, whoa, if Moshe thought it was a good idea, then how is this rebuking the Jews? Then, then if Moshe thought it was a good idea, then what is Moshe expecting? That the Jews should have been better than him? If he thought it was a good idea, then what's wrong with the Jews thinking it's a good idea? Now, now you can rebuke the Jews for what happened after the spies came back. Fine, you can rebuke the Jews for the way they reacted, fine. But how can you rebuke the Jews for the idea of sending the spies if even Moshe thought it was a good idea? Hashem didn't think it was a good idea, Rashi says, but Moshe did. So what's the rebuke here? It's Rashi's question. It's a very powerful question. So Rashi teaches us, Rashi, gives, Rashi explains it. He gives a, a, a marketing answer. He says like this, imagine a guy, says Rashi, Moshe Odom, an analogy, Rashi, Rashi Posakov Gimel. Imagine, an, imagine a guy who goes to his friend and says, sell me your chamoir, sell me your donkey. In the olden days, they used to use donkeys and horses as forms of transportation, right? So the modern day equivalent would be a guy comes to his friend and says, sell me your Porsche, sell me your Lamborghini. And the guy says, hey, the guy says, all right, fine, I'll sell it to you. We agree on a price, we, we, we have a deal. Wait a second, says the guy, before I buy your donkey, before I buy your Porsche, Will you allow me to take the car, to take the donkey for a test drive, to test, to test it out, right? Whatever happens to look under the hood before you purchase the car, you got to check out the merchandise before you buy it. I'm about to invest a significant amount of money. I'd like to buy your horse. I'd like to, excuse me, not, I keep calling it a horse. It's not a horse. It's a chamoyer. It's a ferret, it's a donkey. I'd like to buy your donkey, but before I buy it, I wanna make sure that it's the real deal. I wanna make sure that it's in good condition. Will you allow me to take it for a test drive? The seller says, sure, pleasure, go ahead. Here are the keys. Wait, says the purchaser. Bohorimuk voice, will you allow me to take this donkey for a test drive in mountains and valleys? He goes, the seller goes, pleasure. Bechavod, bevakashah, help yourself, go. Says Rashi, the purchaser notices that the seller has no reservations. He's got this like, sure, pleasure, go ahead, nonchalant attitude. Go ahead, take, take the donkey for a test drive. Take it for a test drive. So the purchaser says, aha, the seller is so confident in his sale, he's so confident in his donkey that he's obviously not hiding anything. If that's the case, says the purchaser, I don't need to take it for a test drive. You see, nobody knows the quality of this donkey better than the seller because he's actually selling it. So if he's perfectly confident for me to take it for a ride, Bahorim, voice, mountains and valleys, he's obviously so confident in the quality of, the, of, this, of this donkey that he has no reservations at all. If that's the case, says the purchaser, I don't need to take it for a test ride. And the purchaser gives the seller the money and buys the horse. End of analogy. So says Rashi, Moshe Rabbeinu is rebuking the Jews. He says, I told you in the name of Hashem that the land of Eretz Yisrael is a good land. You guys were about to purchase it, meaning to say you were about to put your life on the line for this land of Eretz Yisrael. But before you did, you asked me to send spies to, so to speak, take it for a test drive to check it out. And I said, yes, sure, go ahead. I agreed. 
Then you said, wait, can we send them into the mountains, into the valleys? Can we check out every part of Eretz Yisrael? And Moshe says, I said to the Jews, no problem. I'll even choose the 12 spies for you. Moshe says, I didn't really, Rashi is saying, Moshe Rabbeinu means, I didn't really, really think you should send spies. I didn't really, really think it was necessary. I thought it was a terrible idea. The reason why I agreed, the reason why I went along with it was because I was hoping that when you see how confident I am in Hashem's promise that the land is a good land, that I have no reservations about you sending spies, you would see that and you would go, okay, there's no need. And then we would go into Eretz Yisrael without, send, without sending spies. But that's not what happened, says Moshe, is it? I agree to your request, says Moshe, only so that when you see that I have no hesitation, you would change your minds. Concludes Rashi, you didn't change your mind. You insisted on sending them anyways. And that's where all the trouble starts. End of Rashi. And that's the explanation as to how Moshe is rebuking the Jews. It was true, says Moshe, that you were justified in initially wanting to send spies. It's a good idea that you said, let's send spies. But as soon as I said, yes, this is a typical Jewish way of thinking. As soon as I said, yes, you should have said no. And that's why he's rebuking them because they should have said no when Moshe said yes, because they should have realized that there's no need for them to, to send them in the first place. The Jews. I said yes to the sending of the spies as a plan, as a, as, a, as a scheme to get you to say no, but it didn't work. You insisted on sending them anyways, and that's where all the trouble starts. Okay, this is new information. We, didn't, we, we studied the story of the spies before in Parsha Shlach, but of course we had no idea that Moshe was scheming to get the Jews to say no. This is new information. We discovered this here. All right. We'll get back to this, but, but, but let's move on for a second. And then a couple of Pesukim later, Moshe Rabbeinu drops a bomb. Pesuk Chavzayim. Pesuk, excuse me, Pesuk Lamed Zayim. Verse 37. After Moshe says that Hashem decreed against the Jews that they're not going to go into Eretz Yisrael and they're all going to die out. The only one, says Moshe, who will go into Eretz Yisrael is Kolev ben Yefuna, Posak Lamed Zion, quote, Gambi, also on me, also against me, his Anaf Hashem, Hashem got angry, because of you, the Jews, Leimar Hashem said to me, Gam ato you, Moshe Rabbeinu, Loisav Hashem, will not go there into Eretz Yisrael. Next, Posak Lamed Ches, Yeshua ben Yeshua He's going into Eretz Yisrael and he's going to inherit the land uh, together with the Jews on behalf of the Jews, etc. Moshe is saying, you know what else happened at the time of the spies? Hashem got upset with me. And Hashem told me, Moshe Rabbeinu, I'm also not going to go into Eretz Yisrael because of you. Kolev and Yehoshua, they're going in. That's it. And all the commentaries gasp. Holy heavens. What's the Torah saying? That at the time of the story of the spies, it was decreed against Moshe that he's not going into Eretz Yisrael? This is mind-blowing. As far as we know, the reason why Moshe doesn't go into Eretz Yisrael is because of the story of the water and the rock, what's referred to as Mei Meriva, the waters of rebellion. Please understand that what happens with the water and the rock happens 40 years after the story of the spies. The story of the spies happens approximately within the first year I shouldn't say approximately. The story of the spies happens on Tisha B'Av, as, as we're about to discuss. This is, this is a couple of months after the Jews leave Mitzrayim. The story of the water, because of the story of the spies, that's why the Jews were destined to be in the desert for 40 years. At the end of the 40 years, Miriam dies. 
When Miriam dies, the water dries up and Moshe is forced to, to, to extract water from the rock again. And that's where the story happens with the water and the rock. After which the Torah says clearly that because of that, therefore, Moshe was not going to go into Eretz role. And now, out of nowhere, Moshe says, oh, by the way, the story of the spies, Hashem decreed upon you not to go into Eretz role. only call it yes, Hashem got angry with me too, because of you. And said, Moshe Rabbeinu, you're not going into Eretz role either. The other puzzling part of this is that Moshe is all of a sudden saying that it's the Jews' fault. He's, he's rebuking them. Hashem says, Moshe got angry with me because of you, saying that Moshe couldn't go into Eretz Again, as far as we know from the Pesukim themselves until this point, it was, it was of Moshe Rabbeinu's sin at the time of the extraction of water from the rock within the last year before they went into Eretz Yisrael, it was because of this that Moshe doesn't go into, it was decreed upon Moshe and Aaron not to go into Eretz Yisrael. And yet Moshe attributes this to the story of the spies and blames the Jews. Okay. Once again, difficult to understand, new information that we didn't have until now, and actually, in this case, seems to contradict um, just about everything we've known until now in, term, in terms of why Moshe doesn't go in. Okay, there are so many explanations uh, among the commentaries that it's, it's, it's difficult to, to organize and, and, and put into a seder. There's a very famous Ramban. The Ramban says that actually that's not what Moshe means. Moshe means that he didn't go into Eretz because of the story of the water and the rock. So, so why is he sticking it into the middle of the story of the spies? Because he's just collecting all of the people who didn't go into Eretz Yisrael. He's just talking about who does go into Eretz Yisrael and who doesn't go into Eretz Yisrael. The Jews don't. Yeshua and Kolev do. Um, the Torah sort of collect, Moshe is collecting sort of all the information here at once. Many of the commentaries struggle to, to understand this Ramban, but that's what, at least on the surface, that's what he seems to be saying. Um, I want, to, I want to focus on really just one explanation today. Um, because again, there's one can get very lost here. I want to focus on just one. This is the explanation of the Eirachayim. The Eirachayim, the Eirachayim explains it. He explains why we're saying, why, Mo, why the Torah is saying, why Moshe is saying that it was decreed upon him not to go into Eretz Yisrael at the time of the Meraglan. When the Torah says it was because of the, the story of the water and the rock, Barachayim explains it. To explain it, he brings three Gemaras. They're, they're, they're famous, but he, he, he explains it based on, he sort of builds his argument in three steps. Number one, the Gemara says in Masech the Tainus, we've discussed this before, that the night the Meraglim the spies came back and gave a bad report on Eretz Yisrael. That night was Tisha B'Av, which actually in the Jewish calendar is tomorrow night, Shabbos. We don't fast on Shabbos, we fast on Sunday, but Shabbos this year, Tisha B'Av this year is, is Shabbos. Um, Tisha B'Av, the ninth of Av, right? The Jewish, the Jewish ninth day of the 11th month, uh, the Hebrew 9-11, if you will. The Gemara says, that Hashem was so upset at what had happened, in the words of the Pesach, the nation, at the time of the story of the spies, cried all night after hearing the report about Eretz Yisrael. Hashem was so upset, Hashem said, you know, you cried all night, you cried all night for nothing. I'm going to make this night a Bechiel Adairus. I'm going to make this night the lightning rod for the Tzoros of Klal Yisrael that will reverberate throughout history. It'll be on this night. Kind of like a parent who tells a child, I'm going to give you something to cry about. That's basically what the Gemara says. 
All right, that's number one. Number two, a Gemara Masech Saita that says that if Moshe Rabbeinu had gone into Eretz Yisrael and would have built the Beis HaMikdash, the Beis HaMikdash would have never been destroyed. No nation or language would ever have the ability, would ever have the gall, would ever have the, the, the political or social footing to ever touch the Beis HaMikdash. The Gemara says the only reason why the Beis HaMikdash was destroyed and the second Beis HaMikdash was destroyed, on Tishba, mind you, is because it wasn't built by Moshe Rabbeinu. Had it been built by Moshe Rabbeinu, nobody would have ever touched it. It would have been an eternal. Whatever Moshe Rabbeinu touches is eternal. Moshe's actions last forever. If Moshe would have built the Beis HaMikdash, it would have never been destroyed. That's introduction number two. Introduction number three. He quotes it from a medrash. I'm not sure why. It's also in the Gemara. But here the medrash says that when the Rabbanu Shlolem destroyed the Beis HaMikdash, Mizmor Osaf. Osaf sang a song of thanks to the Rabbanu Shlolem for destroying it. Why? Well, because, quote, Shofa Chamosay Alo Eitzim Avonim, the Almighty God poured out his anger on, on wood and bricks, on wood and stones rather than pouring out his anger against the Jews. You see, it, at the time, it wasn't really the Beis HaMikdash that was the lightning well, well, it was the Beis HaMikdash that acted as the lightning rod, but it wasn't really the Beis HaMikdash that was the object of God's fury. The Beis HaMikdash had done nothing wrong. It was really the Jews. Shafa HaMosei Elo Eitzim Avonim means God did the equivalent so to speak, pardon my expression, of punching a wall in his fury. In the divine moment of anger, he punched the wall rather than punching the person who was angering him. Right? He grabbed a piece of paper and ripped it in half. There's, there's a halacha in, in Hilcha Shabbos that says, makalkal is potter, which means if you do something destruct, destructive um, on Shabbos, even if under normal circumstances, it would be a malacha, but if you do it for the sake of kilkel, if you do it just for the sake of destruction, you're potter. That's not halacha. The Torah really, really only forbids one to do something constructive and positive. But if you're if you're doing something destructive biblically, you, you don't transgress. So, for example, if you if you take some, one of one of the obvious malachas is called kireya, right? Which which means literally means tearing, right? If you take a garment and you tear it, it's one of the thirty nine malachas. But the Mishnah says. You're only obligated if you tear it for the sake of resewing it. If you're tearing it for the sake of destroying it, then you're not obligated because you just macalculus put it. That's the halach. So the Gemara says, what if a person is tearing it without any intent of resewing the garment? But they're tearing it to release their fury. They're tearing it to release their anger. Right? A person gets angry and they rip the garment in half. Then you are obligated. Yuchayev, biblically. Why? All I did was take a shirt and destroy it. Yeah, yeah, you destroyed the shirt, but you helped yourself. You fixed yourself in the process. You allowed yourself to get over your anger. All right, it's obviously not a healthy way to release anger, right? Today they have something called anger management, which means people need to learn psychologically and emotional healthy ways to release their anger, but apparently it works at least temporarily. So the Gemara says, this is an unbelievable Gemara. The Gemara says, this is what happened when it came to the destruction of the Beis HaMikdash. Hashem had divine built up anger directed against the Jews. Destroyed the Beis HaMikdash. And the anger was expended. The anger was, was spent. So concludes the Gemara the Jews could survive. But God forbid, had the Jews not, had the Rabbani Shloylam not poured out his anger against the, against the Beis HaMikdash, had he poured out his anger against the Jews, the Jewish people would have been destroyed. Rahman al-Itzlan. And for that reason, Mizmer Osof, Osof, one of the composers of some of the Kapitlach of Tehillim, sings a song of praise 
sings a song. Mizmar sang, sings a song of praise to Rabbanu Shleilam, thanking him for destroying the base of Mikdash. How can we even say such a thing? Says the Gemara, it was far better than the alternative, which would have been God pouring out his wrath against the base of Mikdash. All right, concludes the Erechayim. Let's put these three pieces, let's put these three Gemaras together. Number one, if God had not, I'm going in reverse order. Number one, if God had not destroyed the Beis HaMikdash, he would have destroyed the Jews. Number two, if Moshe had gone into Eretz Yisrael, he would have built the Beis HaMikdash and it would have lasted forever. And number three, it was at the time of the Miraglim that God destined that the Beis HaMikdash be destroyed on the night of Tishabov after the Jews cried all night for nothing. Now, if you do what they say in yeshiva, if you halt cup, if you can hold on to all three concepts at once and you combine them, says the Erechaim, you come to a fascinating two conclusions. Number one, if Moshe had gone into Eretz Yisrael and Moshe had built the Beis HaMikdash, there would have been no way for the Beis HaMikdash to be destroyed and God would have had no choice other than to pour his anger out against the Jews. So actually, this Moshe Rabbeinu going into the Beis HaMikdash and building the Beis HaMikdash, says the Erechaim, could have ended in disaster because God would not have had another outlet to pour out his anger against the Beis HaMikdash. He would have had to pour it out against the Jews destroying, devastating Rahman al-Islam, the Jewish people. So it's actually a good thing that Moshe didn't go into Eretz Yisrael and build the Beis HaMikdash, thereby allowing an outlet, an, a different outlet for Hashem on Tisha B'Av to destroy the Beis HaMikdash rather than the Jews. That's the first wild, amazing conclusion we come to. The second amazing conclusion we come to is that none of this would have been necessary if the Jews had not sent the spies and cried all night on Tisha B'av. If they wouldn't, if they would not have spent the entire night of Tisha B'av crying, then Tisha B'av would have never been a lightning rod, never been a day for the destruction of, for, 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 for Tzoros of Klal Yisrael. It wasn't just that the, it was, the, the repercussions of the story of the Miraglim are not just that that generation dies out in the desert. The consequence of this reverberates throughout all of Jewish history. Everything that happens on Tisha B'Av for all future, for the rest of Jewish history, the destruction and the pogroms and the tsaras and the suffering and everything all happened because of the spies. Now I wanna take a quick minute here and just explain why what, why what Erechaim is saying is so, is, is so innovative. You see, when you learn the Gemara, the Gemara says, Hashem watched the Jews in the time of the story of the spies cry all night. Hashem says, you're crying for nothing. I'm going to give you something to cry about. I'm going to make this night a bechil, a doyos, etc. When you learn this piece of Talmud on a simple level, it's not, it does, the Gemara doesn't mean that Hashem said, I'm going to give you tzoros, I'm going to give you destruction. I'm going to give you, I'm going to, uh, calamities will befall the Jewish people that otherwise would not have happened. On a simple level, that's not what the Gemara is saying. On a simple level, what the Gemara is saying is that God chose this date. In other words, the first place of Mikdash was destroyed because the Jews desecrated idol worship, murder, and incest and, and immorality. The second base of Mikdash was destroyed because of sinas chinam, of baseless hatred between Jews. But now a date needed to be chosen on the calendar. A, a, a lightning rod in time needed to be chosen for these destructions to take place. So Hashem said, okay, you chose Tisha B'av to cry all night for nothing. I'll give you something to cry about at Tisha B'av. And it, it, it became Tisha B'av. The Erechaim is saying, that's not what the Gemara means. The Erechaim is saying what the Gemara means is if the, if the Jews had not sinned with the sin of the spies, the first base of Mikdash would never have been destroyed. And the second base of Mikdash would never have been destroyed. The Jews would have gone into Eretz Yisrael 
Moshe Rabbeinu would have built the base of Mikdash. There would have been no need to destroy the base of Mikdash. The Jews would never have sinned in the first place. Tisha B'Av would be a regular day on the calendar. And then Moshe Rabbeinu could go into Now, if there's no need to destroy the base of Mikdash, so then Moshe could go into Eretz Yisrael, build the base of Mikdash, and if it lasts forever, there's no problem because it'll never need to be destroyed. Because the Jews will never sin, so Hashem will never get angry with them. And Hashem will never need to pour out his anger against, against bricks and stones, against, against wooden, wooden stones and rocks. All of the tsaurus of Jewish history happened because of the story of the spies. When the story of the spies happened, Hashem didn't just decree that this generation wouldn't go into its role. Hashem said the base of Mikdash they'll build one day will have to be destroyed. The second base of Mikdash they build one day will have to be destroyed. And all of these things will happen on Tisha B'Av. Now, once it was decreed that the base of Mikdash will have to be destroyed, now Moshe Rabbeinu says the Rechaim is 100% right. Now Moshe Rabbeinu cannot go into Eretz because if he goes into Eretz Yisrael and builds the base of Mikdash, it'll spell disaster for the Jewish people. So at the time of the story of the spies, Big Lal Chem says, Moshe, because of what you did, Hashem said to me, Moshe, I cannot go into Eretz Yisrael. I cannot build a base of Mikdash. Because an outlet needs to be let needs to be left for God's wrath to be poured out against the base of Mikdash rather than the Jews. All right. The Orachim concludes. Then why does the Torah say that it happened because of the story of the water and the rock? So he adds this clincher. He says, Well, if Moshe Rabbeinu would have done what he was supposed to at the time of the water and the rock the Jewish people would have been elevated spiritually to the level they were before the story of the spies. And then everything would be okay. For 40 years, this, this decree against the Jews of that generation, of all future generations, all the Tsaris of Klal Yisrael, for 40 years, the Tsaris of Klal Yisrael for all of Jewish history hung in the balance. It was all dependent on what would happen at the moment of the water and the rock. There was an opportunity there to fix everything and restore it to the way it was before they sent spies. But the moment was lost. Moshe didn't do what he was supposed to. At that point, Hashem says, okay, you didn't fix it. You didn't fix it. We're stuck with, with, with the repercussions of the story of the spies. Because of me, also against me, says Moshe, Hashem has now decreed upon you sorrows for the rest of Jewish history, and Moshe cannot go into Eretz Yisrael, otherwise things will be worse for the Jews. Okay. I want to repeat one more time the essence of his interpretation. The essence of the Erechaim's interpretation is that when the, Jew, the sin of the spies gave us not just 40 years in the desert, gave us not just a decree against the Jewish people that that generation wouldn't go into Eretz Yisrael. Gave us not just a, 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 an anniversary of Tisha B'Av for 40 years in the desert that any Jew who turned 60 would have to die that year. The story of the spies, says the Erechaim, is responsible for setting into motion every disaster for the rest of Jewish history that befell the Jewish people. As a result, Moshe cannot go into Eretz Yisrael because when the Jewish people sin, Hashem needs to be able to destroy the Beis HaMikdash in order to save the Jewish people, which cannot be done if Moshe had built the Beis HaMikdash. If Moshe had built the Beis HaMikdash, he would have been bulletproof. The sin of the spies gives us the Tzoros of Klal Yisrael. For 40 years, there would have, for 40 years, it hung in the balance because there would have been a moment to fix everything at the story of the rock and the water. Once that opportunity is lost, it's not that the water and the rock caused Moshe not to go into Eretz Yisrael. It's just that it was a missed opportunity to fix it. That's the essence 
of the Erechaim's interpretation. Okay, someone wrote, if the first base of Mikdash would not have been destroyed, then there would not have been a second base of Mikdash to destroy. Correct. Correct. Of course. Okay, I will only add the Erechaim, of course, true to his style, he, he, he adds a spiritual dimension um, to, to, to the interpretation of the Psukim. So he does make it clear that he means this not just on a halachic level, not just on a practical level, but also on a spiritual level. What he's saying is if they hadn't sinned with, if they hadn't sinned with the spies, they would have retained their spiritual integrity as they would have, as they would have gone into Eretz Yisrael, and there would have been no need. In other words, they would not have been contaminated spiritually. There would have been no need for any of, of, of the destructions that took place in Jewish history. They would have retained this spiritual level that they had before the spies. Okay. What he doesn't tell, what he does not tell us is what's so bad about the sin of the spies. Why is this, you know, so to speak, the... the the, the, the trigger that senses that sets into motion so much pain. I mean, it's, it's not for now, but but so much of the Tzoros of Klal Yisrael, even Rachman Islam during the Holocaust, is traced historically to the day of Tishabov. Because the Jews decided to send spies. And Moshe Rabbeinu himself said, I also thought it was a good idea. This the Eurachim doesn't, doesn't explain. He leaves that, I guess, either up to us or for us to go back to the original story where the Torah tells the story of the spies and think there into, into, into what it is. I want to spend two minutes trying to develop this. What is, what is the issue here? Why the sin of the spies so bad? So the Jewish people said, let's send spies. Let's add another question to this. Let's add another, another layer to this. We also learn at this point in Chomish Dvarim that Moshe Rabbeinu played along with it. All right, Rashi says he was just pretending or he was just creating this facade, etc. But at least on a superficial level, Moshe does go along with it. So when they came to Moshe and said, let's send spies, presumably Moshe had some idea of how disastrous this thing could be, of, of, how, of how things could go so horribly wrong, Moshe Benes says, you know what? All right, let's try it. He agrees. Rashi says he agreed because he was hoping that when the Jews would see he agreed, they would say no. Let me ask you a question. If the spies, the story of the spies, the sin of the spies, if, if the story of the Moraglim is so crucial to the very fabric of Jewish history. I mean, if, if so much is hanging here in the balance, couldn't Moshe, for God's sake, couldn't Moshe Rabbeinu lean forward, whisper to the Jews and say, it's not a good idea. You're playing with fire. Rashi gives this example. The example itself is difficult to understand. Somebody wants to buy a donkey, right? He wants to take it for a test drive. The seller says, yeah, take it, take it, take it. And the purchaser sees he's not holding anything back. It's very difficult to understand. It's not for now. But imagine your own child. Imagine your own family members. Imagine your own will come to you and they say to you, we want, imagine a child says, we want to run around in traffic. We want to run around in the streets. What are you going to do? Tell the kid, go ahead, hoping that the kid will hop, that it's a bad idea. Imagine somebody comes to you and says, I want to roll the dice in Jewish history. I want to roll the dice on, on, on the Beis Hamikdash, on, on the Jews, not just what will happen to the Jews, but even on their spiritual status. What would you take? Take a, 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 a salesman approach. Well, if I tell them there's nothing to fear, hopefully they'll, they'll just go along with it. Why didn't he just tell them no? Why didn't he just say it's a bad idea? And all of this becomes part of the rebuke. Moshe is rebuking the Jews for not saying no when he said yes. So why is it so bad? And if it is so bad, why is it Moshe seemingly treating it this way? What does this mean? All right. Here's, here's how I want to explain it. 
There's a great Hasidic story uh, told over by a man we refer to in Chabad as Reb Mendel Futafas, who had just some of the greatest analogies and anecdotes and, and all the rest of it. It's told over in different ways, but, but, but here's the essence of it. He himself was exiled by the communists to Siberia for helping Jews escape, uh, helping Jews escape communist Russia, for helping them escape the former Soviet Union. And there, while he was in prison, uh, while he was out in the middle of God knows where, um, slowly starving to death, freezing to death, working to death, he met all sorts of interesting people. He survived, thank God, but he met all sorts of interesting people. And among them, he relates one day, he met a tightrope walker, right? Nowadays, you can just go on YouTube and watch them there, there have this ability to walk on a tightrope. But there in this particular place, YouTube hadn't come around yet. They'd never heard of it. They'd never seen it. They couldn't believe it. And the guy said, yeah, I'm a tightrope walker. Well, what does that mean? He says, you can tie a rope from the top of one building to the other, to the top of another building, and I can walk across. Not just I can walk across, but I can walk across on one foot, right? Some of them can ride across on bicycles. Some of them can, can go across holding long sticks and on top of wheelbarrows and God knows, well, with wheelbarrows on top of God knows what. Anyways, Reb Mendel said, we'd never heard of such a thing before and we definitely never seen it. And so you can imagine that his proclaimed skill of being a tightrope walker was met with plenty of skepticism. People were like, come on, walk on top of a rope from one place to another. But the guy insisted that he was, he was legit, he was for real. Not only that, he said to them, if you ever get a solid enough piece of rope, I challenge you to tie it between two points at such an altitude, so high, that if I were to fall off, it would mean immediate death. And without hesitation, you'll watch me walk across. Anyways, for years, they teased him that he was making it up and all the rest of it. But as luck has it, by divine providence, whatever you want, one day the Oilam discovered a piece of rope. And it was thick, and it was healthy, and it was in good condition. And they come running to the guy and they say to him, Ha-ha, we're going to expose you, my friend. Time to pay up. Time to make good on the commitment you made that you can ro- walk on, on top of rope from one point to the other. The guy says, I stand by my word. Do me a favor, give me the piece of rope. I need to practice a little bit. Give me a couple of hours, I'll be good to go. Anyways, he takes the rope, he ties it from one point to the other. He practices for a couple of hours. He comes back, he says, I'm ready. And so they do. They tie it from one end to the other end at an altitude where if he falls, he's Borach Dianemis. And they all stand around and they watch. The guy climbs up, house building, whatever it was, and slowly but steadily, he starts to walk across, step by step, from one side to the other, until he makes it to the other end, turns around, and walks right back. And the place erupts in applause, blown away, wow! I mean, that's just, it's really, I mean, if you think about it, it really is an amazing thing to do. New respect, unbelievable. Anyways, the guy gets down, the piece of rope comes down. And this becomes the entertainment for the next weeks, months, whatever it was, every day, whenever they wanted, no problem. The guy would get up there and he would walk across the road back and forth and they'd play, the people were just blown away. Anyways, Rav Mendel is a chassidah He's sitting there and he's watching this and he too is impressed by it. But he wants to know two things. Number one, he wants to know, how does the guy really do it? What is it, some kind of, it's, it's not a trick. He's obviously able to do it, that's one. And the second thing he wants to figure out, of course, is what do we learn from this? Well, <laughs> there's gotta be some reason, right? It was a, a basic principle in the teachings of the Baal Shem Tov, that everything we see and experience in life is a lesson in Avodah Hashem. So he wants to know how it works and what to learn from it. Anyways, so he watches the guy and he studies his every move as he walks across and back. And he makes a couple of interesting observations. 
The first observation he makes is that when the guy gets to the, the, gets to the end and has to turn around and walk back, whenever he turns around, he always seems to, to almost lose his balance. That's his weakest moment. Turning around from one way to the other is his most vulnerable moment. And the second thing he notices is that as he walks across the tightrope, every part of his body can be flailing in a million different directions. Open your hearts, my friends. But his eyes are focused on his point of destination. He's concentrating on that destination point to the exclusion of everything else. He doesn't deviate from focusing and concentrating. His entire existence is focused on the point of his destination. And he let, never loses concentration. All right. So one day the guy gets down from the rope and Mendel calls him over and says, I gotta talk to you. He says, tell me, I noticed that your arms and legs can move in a million different directions, but your focus is so intense. It's like, it's like you, you're focused on this, on where you're headed. Your entire mind is locked on this. And the only time you seem to, to, to be hesitant is when you have to turn around. He says to him, is this in essence a, a, a mind, if you will, mind over matter ability of yours? Is this your, your ability to, to, to mentally Focus your, your body and your muscles and your balance and everything on your point of destination so intensely that you never fall. And the tightrope walker says, you nailed it, exactly. He says, the trick of the tightrope walking is to focus on the point of destination and never deviate from it. He says, if I lose focus for an iota of a second, I fall off and I'm, and I'm done. The most difficult part is getting to the end and turning around because then I have to shift my focus from one point of destination to the other. And as I do, that's the vulnerable moment. I got to turn around and lock on my new destination point faster than my body has the ability to fall. And then I can steady myself and I'm safe. All right. So, Reb Mendel absorbed the information with God's help in the early 60s, I believe. He manages to get out of communist Russia and he goes and he meets up with his old friends and neighbors and all the people he knew from beforehand. And he tells them, have I got a story to tell you? And he tells them the story of the tightrope walker. What do you think we learned from the story, he says. He says, I'll to tell you the truth, he says, that story of the tightrope walker saved my life. Well, how did it do that? He says, because I thought about what the tightrope walker was saying. And I realized that what he was saying was that if we're, if we're, if we're sufficiently aware of our destination, if we know where it is that we're going, and we focus on it to the exclusion of everything else, we can get there even if all we have to walk on is a thread. The thread is powerful enough to create a road to get there as long as we know where we're going. And if we deviate and lose focus of where it is that we're headed, we become vulnerable in a million different ways. He says, there were times when I felt like I was starving to death in the labor camps. There were times when I felt I was freezing to death. There were times where, where my existence was hanging in there by a thread. I stayed focused on my destination. What is the purpose of all of this? And with God's help and God's graces and blessings, I was able to survive. All right. I use this story sometimes, either the story itself or the message of the story. I use it when people sometimes will say to me, they'll tell me that they feel lost or that they feel confused. 
in all sorts of things, in life, in relationships, in career, in, in spiritually. And they ask for advice, right? How do I deal with this particular challenge in life? Sometimes very painful, gut-wrenchingly painful challenges that come their way. I have a confession to make. When people ask for help, there are two types. There are those that I can feel like, there are those that I feel like I can, and there are those that I feel like I cannot. And I'll tell you the difference. You see, some people come to me and say, or some people ask for advice and say, I know I need to accomplish X. I know I need to get to Y. I have a sense of purpose and destination in life. I have some idea of what the Rabbi Shalom wants from me. I know what I need to do. I know where I need to end up. I just don't know how to get there. All I can see is a thread. How does a thread get me from here to my destination point? Those types of people can be helped. For although they do not know how to accomplish what they need to do, they live with a sense of purpose. They're aware of it. They can see it in their mind's eye. They're just struggling with all the elements that seem to be blowing them one way or the other. Those types can be helped. We can give them advice. We can give them tools, guidance, skills in terms of how to deal with these forces that are pushing them one way or the other because they know where they're going. But then there are those who ask for advice, lost and confused, without a true north. So you say to the person who's struggling with all these things, tell me, what is it that you're hoping to accomplish through dealing with all of these challenges? And sometimes perhaps to no fault of their own, they're just so worn down that they say, you know what? I just want my troubles to go away. Let me ask you a question. If I had a magic wand and I could make all your troubles go away, what would happen then? What would you do then? How would you live your life then? Oh, I don't know. I guess I would figure it out. They feel so bogged down by life's challenges that they can no longer see their point of destination. They want the problems to go away so they can find a path for their life. This person is more difficult, more challenging to help because sadly, a person without a destination point is like a tightrope walker who isn't focused on their point of destination, in which case it doesn't matter how big or small that piece of rope is, even if the road is eight lanes wide. If you don't know where you're going, you're lost. And sadly, people who want to help you are limited because they cannot tell you where it is that you're destined to go. That's something that you need to find within yourself. The Jewish people had many difficult moments in their 40 years in the desert. They worshiped the Egel Azov. They complained every Montek and Donishtik. They were unhappy with the food. They were unhappy with the conditions. They were, they were unhappy that they left Mitzrayim. But it was the sin of the spies that was, in this case, what threw them off for the rest of Jewish history. Why? You see, because Moshe Rabbeinu said, I was always hoping that you would have sufficient mental capacity to focus on your point of destination. What's your point of destination? The Rabbi Nishalolam promised you, I will bring you to the land that I promised your ancestors I would give it to you. I give it to you as an inheritance. 
And Eretz Zavas Cholovudvash. Moshe says, as long as you were focused on the destination, we could get through anything. We could get through the Egel Azov. We could get through your, your mourning over, over wanting to go back to Egypt. We could get through Kairach. We could get through, we could get through your constant, incessant complaints. We could get through Bolok and Bilom and the, and the plagues and, 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 and the Baal Pa'oyer and, and, and the daughters of Midian and Moyev. We could get through it all. Even if all we had was a thread to walk on, we could survive it all. Jewish history was safe in the hands of the final destination that Hashem promised you. You will get to the promised land. But then as we're about to walk into the promised land, you decide you want to send spies to check out the land. And I say, Okay, you want to send spies, send spies. You send the spies, the spies come back and say, ah, we're troubled by what we see. And now you don't want to go into a stroll. So now what's so now what's the purpose of all of this? What's the purpose of everything? <laughs> What is it all for if you don't want to go into Eretz Yisrael? You know, there's this expression the Jews use, which literally means, where, where are we going up to? And Moshe says, where are we going up to? So they ended up dying in the desert. And Moshe says, and I died in the desert too. Because forgive the expression, there was nothing to work with. A, Jew, a Jewish nation who are mentally lost. Moshe said, I, 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 I tried to encourage you. I tried to give you an answer that would remind you. When I said yes to the spies, I was trying to remind you about the goodness of the land. That didn't work. I was out of options. I had nothing left. And once the generation was lost, Moshe, as their leader, had to stay in that state of being lost as well. Moshe couldn't tell the Jews, no, don't send spies, because they needed to have a sense within themselves that they had a destination point. If he stopped them from sending spies, it wouldn't have helped. Can't a destination point cannot be forced upon you? You have to have an internal sense of direction that you're going somewhere. If you don't know where you're going, then there isn't a hope that you're going to get there because there is no there. Tishabov is always a time of year where we reflect on the past and the future. We reflect on the Tzoros of the Churban and we dive into Hashem from Mashiach. You know, my friends, we were learning about this this week. The Rambam says, the Rambam writes, that it's not enough to believe in the coming of Mashiach. We have to anticipate. We have to be machakil biyosay. We have to wait for Mashiach to come. It's one of the first questions they ask us after 120. Tzipis ali Yeshua. Not only did you believe in Mashiach, but did you eagerly, emotionally anticipate and wait for the coming of Mashiach? And the Rambam says, if you don't, you are denying the prophecies of all the prophets and the Torah and, the Torah and Moshe Rabbeinu. One of the explanations, one of the many explanations for what the Rambam is saying is, the Rambam is saying, we're Jews. We're, we're servants of Hashem. We, we study Torah. We, we do mitzvahs. We, 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 we are trying to make this world a godly place. We, we live a life. We, we raise families. We, we work so hard every single day to do our best, do our best, do our best. And the Rambam says, wait. Don't get so stuck in the trees that you can't see the forest. Don't get so stuck in the details that you forget what this is all about. All of this, it's, it's, it's a walk on a tightrope. Don't lose focus of the destination. You have to be every day, every, every part of Torah Mitzvah, it's all taking us somewhere. 
Please God to the third base of Mikdash with the coming of Mashiach may be speedily in our days. That's the purpose of everything. If you're not consciously aware and yearning for it, then what? Then you're like the Jews who've been taken out of Egypt and been given the Torah and don't want to go into Eretz Where she looks at them and shrugs her shoulders and says, I don't even know what to do with you. So, so, so what do you think is the point of all of this? Just to stay in the desert? All right, is what you want, stay in the desert. Die in the desert if that's what you want. If that's what you want, that's what you'll get. But you've missed the point of everything. May it be Hashem's will that as we once again approach the day of Tisha B'Av, please God, the Rabboni Shalom should look at all of the wonderful Torah mitzvahs that the Jewish people are doing lately. There's much more awareness and much more talk among Klal Yisrael about Sipisal Yeshua, about the yearning for Mashiach. Tisha B'Av is not just a day where we mourn the destruction of the Beis HaMikdash and all of the terrible calamities that befell Klal Yisrael. Tisha B'Av is a day where we once again remind ourselves and the Rabbi Shalom that the Jewish people have suffered in Golos enough. And it's time for Hashem to send us Mashiach. May it be speedily in our days. Amen. Kenyi Hirotzen.